Well, hello and welcome back to the Archaeology News. Yes, believe it or not, it's, I've had one of these uh, these weeks where you, you think, I'm going to get on with something, and then before you know it, it's, well, in fact, it's Wednesday today. Good grief, it's not actually just Wednesday, but it seems to be a week on Wednesday. So uh, many apologies for keeping you all waiting. It's just sometimes... Uh, and I'm sure it's good for me to be actually busy, but just sometimes uh, things get in the way. So apologies for that. You don't know any more about that at all. You want to know about what the news is. Well, let's get on with it. The news, of course, is brought to you in partnership between Stone Pages and the British Archaeological Jobs and Resources website, as well as the fabulous Past Horizons. All the stories have been collected from various sources, and to view the details in each story, including that all-important source, you're going to have to go along to the Stone Pages website at news stonepages.com So what have we got for you? Well, we've got storms exposing prehistoric human remains on a Cornish beach and sadly vandals hitting the Nine Ladies Stone Circle also in Britain. There's an amazing find at a Dartmoor Bronze Age grave. It truly is amazing. And a rather mysterious one, the sound of prehistoric art in caves. Ice Age occupants of a long-submerged land bridge come to life again. Not literally, fortunately. And we've got climate change causing the decline of the Indus Valley civilization. The Altamira cave paintings are controversially reopened to the public. And Los Angeles. The ancient climate there seems to have been driven by its wetlands. We finish with uh, one of these, uh, and finally, stories. The world's oldest cheese has been found under a chin in China. Ow. Efforts are underway to identify ancient human remains found on a Cornish beach in England. Archaeologists believe the bones exposed by storms in a cliff at Harlan Bay near Padstow could be those of a young woman from either the Iron Age or the Bronze Age. Archaeologist Andy Jones from Cornwall Council's Historic Environment Service said that there had been lots of burials from this period in the area. A member of the public reported the discovery to the police after noticing the cliff face had changed, bits of it fallen off, I suspect, and the bones were suddenly in view following this year's winter storms. We've been having a lot of this, actually, recently, and it's one of the big things. It's the coastal archaeology. If you're interested in coastal archaeology, and especially if you are up here in Scotland, then I recommend that you get along to SCAPE or SHARP. If you put in S-C-A-P-E, SCAPE, and archaeology, then you'll get yourself along to the website for the coastal archaeology, where you can actually get involved in recording the archaeology before it disappears beneath the waves forever. Now, as I said, a rather sad story. Residents living near the Bronze Age Nine Ladies Stone Circle near Stanton Moor in the Peak District of England recently found the stones had been covered in paint. English Heritage said it was working with the local authority and police to investigate the damage. Each of the stones were daubed with green and yellow paint. There was also a record of perhaps some ashes being scattered around. So, who knows what was going on in 2,000 environmental protesters had camped at the site in a long-running campaign against plans to reopen two dormant quarries near the monument. Permission for the planning application was eventually revoked in 2008. An English heritage spokesman said that the site may need specialist conservation work to remove the paint in order to avoid further damage. Terrible that. They've been there for about three, three and a half thousand years. People think they can just come along and uh, paint them. 
Who knows, though? Uh, actually, originally, that's what they might have looked like. But, and this is very serious, uh, it just doesn't mean that you can just go along to any one of these ancient monuments and treat it as you will. These are very precious and, believe it or not, fragile monuments. Now, this is the stunning find that I was telling you about. It is truly amazing. I really recommend that you have a look at this if you can Google it. As I say, Google is your friend. Just do Dartmoor Bronze Age Grave. It is a truly stunning find. About 4,000 years ago, a young woman's cremated bones were in fact carefully wrapped in a fur along with her most valuable possessions packed up into a basket and then carried up to one of the most highest exposed spots on Dartmoor. That's in the South Devon of England, where they were then buried in a small stone box and covered by a mound of peat. The bundle containing this treasury of unique objects, including a tin bead, 34 tin studs, which are the earliest evidence of metalworking in the southwest of England, textiles including nettle fibre belts with leather fringes, jewellery, amber from the Baltic, shale from Whitby up in the north of uh, England, and even wooden ear studs which are the earliest examples of wood-turning ever found in Britain. The site chosen for her grave was no accident. At 600 metres above sea level, Whitehorse Hill is so remote that getting up there today is still a 45-minute walk across heather and bog after a half of an hour drive of a military track from the nearest modern road. Analysing and interpreting one of the most intriguing burials ever found in Britain is now occupying scientists across several continents. Experts in Britain and Denmark and from the Smithsonian in the US have been working on the fur. So far they've worked out what it isn't. It's not dog, it's not wolf, it's not deer, it's not horse, it's not sheep. But they think it might be a bearskin from a species that became extinct in Britain at least 1,000 years ago. Jane Marchand, chief archaeologist at the Dartmoor National Park Authority, said... It has not yet been possible to definitively identify the sex of the fragmented cremated bones, though they suggest a slight individual who's between 15 to 25 years old. I shouldn't really say her, says Marchand, but given the nature of the objects and the, na- and the fact that there's no dagger or weapon of any kind, she personally has no doubts that it was a young woman. Apart from the basket, this burial had a belt and ear studs, identical of those on sale in many goth shops today, made from spindle wood, a hard, fine-grained wood often used for knitting needles. From trees which are actually still growing, believe it or not, on the lower slopes of Dartmoor. There was also a unique armband plaited from cow hair and originally studded with 34 tin beads that would have shone like silver. There was charred scraps of textile that may have been the remains of a shroud and fragments of charcoal from the funeral pyre itself. Although tin, essential for making bronze from Cornwall and Devon, became famous across the ancient world, there's no previous evidence of smelting from such an early date. The necklace, which included amber from the Baltic, had a large tin bead made from part of an ingot beaten flat and then rolled. The archaeologists are convinced it was made locally. The kiss, the stone box, was first spotted more than a decade ago by a walker on Duchy of Cornwall land, but it was only excavated three years ago when archaeologists realised the site was eroding so fast that any possible contents were inevitably lost within a few years. It's only then when they lifted the top slab, and I remember when this first happened, that the scale of the discovery became apparent. The fur and the basket were a wet, blackened, sludgy mess, but through it they could see beets and other objects. 
As he carefully lifted the bundle, a bead even fell out. Previously, there was eight beads from the whole of Dartmoor. Now there's over 200. The contents were taken to the Wiltshire Conservation Laboratory, where the basket alone took a year to clean, freeze-dry and have its contents removed. The empty kist was reconstructed on the site. However, this winter's storms have done so much damage that the archaeologists are now debating whether or not they'll have to move the stones or just leave them to inevitable disintegration. The jewellery and other conserved artefacts will feature in an exhibition later this year at Plymouth City Museum, but although work continues on her bones, it's unlikely to answer the mystery of who she was, how she died, and why at such a young age she merited such an amazing burial. Now another fabulous and uh, significant story that came up was uh, the, the concept of the use of sound and prehistoric art in caves. Believe me, it actually it fascinated me as well. In fact, we're going to be following this up in a Past Horizons story. Significant evidence exists for the importance of organised sound in prehistory. Research in the area has progressed over the last 30 years, as within the International Council for Traditional Music and the International Study Group for Music Archaeology. A number of archaeological finds that are thought to have been musical instruments have been found in caves, particularly well known are the bone flutes. The discovery of a fairly advanced example of an aerophone dated to 40,000 BP emphasises the complex nature of such artefacts, even during the Paleolithic period. Yet surviving artefacts are not the sole method of examining prehistoric sounds. Discussions with researchers at the universities of Valladolid and Zaragoza, sorry about that, in Spain, led to a project exploring the relationships of Paleolithic cave art with sound, music and acoustics. Dr Robert Till at the University of Huddersfield in UK and Dr Bruno Fazenda at the University of Salford in the UK as well both had previously explored the acoustics of Stonehenge. They visited the caves of Asturias and Cantabria in the summer of 2012 and carried out a pilot study. Till, Fazenda and Professor Chris Scar from Durham carried out a fully funded research project in 2013. The acoustics within a cave are strikingly different from those outside. Many activities in the cave would have made sound, whether talking, moving about or grinding and preparing pigments for painting. High-quality digital record made between 2004 and 2007 of the imagery within Tito Bustillo Cave in Spain resulted in the discovery of unknown decorated spaces and a pit in the gallery of the anthropomorphs which contained ochre and crushed bone, teeth and shell which all dated to around 33,000 years ago, suggesting a far greater age than previously thought for at least some of the imagery. On a completely separate note, that's actually got some real relevance to what's being looked at just now at the cave at uh, Chauvet. Anyway, back to uh, this report. The Songs of the Caves project thoroughly investigates the acoustic environment of the Asturian caves of Tito Bustillo, as well as four Cantabrian caves, examining the hypothetical relationship between the acoustic environment and the placement of imagery in them, and exploring such acoustics experimentally. Experts from Spain and the UK used a range of devices including reconstructions of Paleolithic bone flutes and bull roarers as well as drums, bark rattles, cowhorn trumpets, bones, wooden sticks and even river pebbles to excite the acoustic space. 
uh, acoustic space. Just like the idea of exciting the acoustic space. Additionally, several voices were also recorded. The level of background noise was as low as the equipment was actually capable of measuring, far lower than a quiet environment outside. This makes acoustic effects inside the cave particularly striking. Simple, small percussion instruments such as river stones and bones hit together were notably effective. Drums had powerful effects in all situations, as they produced lower frequencies loudly enough to stimulate effects not otherwise heard. Natural reverberations enhanced the sounds of voices and bone flutes. The long reverberation times of the main open central space makes speech difficult to understand, but supports a wide range of musical sounds. When heard from a distance, the effect of reverberation makes it difficult to locate the actual source of the sound, which within the cave could be heard from as far away as 50 metres. Scientists also found that sounds associated with the imagery were particularly effective. For example, using a cow horn to play a single note in front of a bovine image or simulating the bellow of a bull by vocalising it with the pitched note of a horn. Experts also investigated correlations between acoustics and archaeology, recording five characteristics related to paintings and motifs. The type of decoration, the colour, the number of images, the chronology and the depth within the cave. The team also tried to find positions at which to take measurements where there were no images, uh, no images, but imagery would have been possible. For example, a flat blank wall panel. So the question is, why were they not doing this? With one exception... All comparisons of acoustic parameters between decorated and non-decorated caves were statistically significant, suggesting a different acoustic response where decorations are found. The term live is used for spaces with reverberation and dead for those without. And these are useful ways of thinking about how these spaces would have been perceived. The acoustics of a place could have influenced whether it was selected as a position for paintings or engravings. Caves such as these were the only places where Paleolithic people would have encountered such acoustic effects. The project provides evidence of how sounds would have contributed to the sense that these places were important. Now, if you'd like to hear more about this, in fact, actually hear more about this, then pop along to their website. It's Songs of the Caves. That's an S at the end. dot wordpress. dot com. So that was Songs of the Caves, or one word. dot wordpress. dot com. Now, 25,000 years ago, a strip of land known as the Bering Land Bridge linked the continents of Asia and North America across what is now known as the Bering Straits. Although inhospitable, this thin strip of land supported human activity for over 10,000 years. Even though humans were hardier than they are just now, how did this arid, icy terrain support what has been calculated as being a population that was in the thousands? Well, oil and gas exploration may surprisingly have provided the answers. Core samples taken from the ocean floor, the now submerged land bridge, in the process of the exploration activities showed evidence of a fertile environment with a variety of plant and animal life. So the evidence is there to support settlements, but the question remains, why stay in such a hostile, albeit fertile environment and not complete the journey from Asia to North America? The answer may be simple. The ice sheets were blocking the way. The melting of these ice sheets and the subsequent rise in sea levels could possibly have not only allowed the onward migration to proceed, but also necessitated it, as Lambridge was now becoming submerged. 
This period of isolation may also account for the genetic differences between Asia and Native American populations, which, if continuous migration had occurred, should not have happened. Over thousands of years of isolation, minute changes in genetic makeup occurred, with the population of the land bridge gradually evolving in a very different direction. Back to climate again seems to be the flavour of the month if you want to get yourself funded, get yourself some climate change. Paleoclimatology is defined as a study of changes in climate taken on the scale of the entire history of the Earth. Studies of data stored within rocks and sediments, tree rings and ice sheets, microfossils, etc. can provide valuable information on the climate at different stages in the past and also map changes for future trends. Paleoclimatologists have used these techniques to support a theory on the decline of the Indus Valley civilization approximately 4,000 years ago. They studied the sediment from the base of the ancient lake of Kotia Dahar and concluded that the monsoon cycle in that area had been suspended for possibly as long as 200 years, leading to, well, you said it, a long-term drought. The reasons behind this break in the monsoon cycle are unclear, but the theory is backed up by the similar data from Bronze Age Egypt and Greece, whose civilizations also suffered a decline around this time. The lake is not linked to any other water source, and so its levels are directly related to rainfall and evaporation. By studying oxygen isotopes in the sediment, the team determined that there was a dramatic decrease in rainfall over a 200-year period. It is an example, and there are other examples, of how ancient societies have had to contend with climate. There's also lessons for us in the future in which we will have to be able to deal with our own climate change. The vast cavern complex in the Cantabrian region of northern Spain is covered in paintings of animals dated to between 14 to 20,000 years ago. For the past 12 years, visitors have had to settle with a replica in a museum, but now... A small group of visitors are being allowed again to visit the cave of Altamira as part of an experiment to determine whether the paintings can support the presence of sightseers. Until August, on a random day of the week, visitors will be invited to enter a draw and five chosen for a guided tour including 37 minutes inside the cave. They'll have to put on special suits and masks and shoes before entering. Researchers will measure their impact on the cave's temperature, the humidity and microbiological contamination, and the CO2 levels. The results will be used to determine whether or not the cave can be reopened to the public, a controversial decision that has pitted the local tourist economy against the government scientists. The site has been closed several times, starting in 1977, after scientists warned that the body heat and CO2 levels from the 3,000 daily visitors were deteriorating the paintings. The cave was again closed to the public in 2002 after scientists blamed body heat, light and moisture for the appearance of a green mould on some of the paintings. Since then, the regional government has been lobbying for the site to be reopened against the recommendations of the main research body. A 2010 report made it very clear that the cave should not be open to visitors. Otherwise, the consequences, as they say, would be immeasurable. However... The director of the Museum de Altamira defended the decision. The tours, he says, are part of a carefully calculated equation to find a balance between the conservation efforts and making the country's heritage as accessible as possible. It is, he says, a controlled risk.
Now much of what was now Los Angeles and Southern California was once a teeming wetland. A landmark survey going back in time 8,000 years has found that human settlement in the region ebbed and flowed with the levels of the sea and the waters of the Los Angeles River. Since 1989, a team of scientists have conducted scores of archaeological surveys, drilled dozens of cores into the coastal soil and poured over countless microscopic fossils to reconstruct the environment and human history of the area. They found that the historical heart of Los Angeles has been a marshy flat, now known as the Bologna Wetlands. Today, the wetlands are little more than a grassy inlet near the upscale development of Marina del Rey. Dr. Richard uh, Keolic Torello, who helped lead more than 100 archaeologists in the research, says that from a somewhat mysterious thousand-year abandonment of the region around 4000 BCE to an equally sudden population explosion some 2000 years ago, the history of ancient LA seems to have been driven by its coastal marshes. Although other studies have dealt with aspects of Aboriginal life or certain time periods, this study dealt with the entire sequence of occupation from the first evidence of human settlement to the abandonment of the last site. Human occupation of the area likely began as long ago as 11,000 years, based on evidence elsewhere in Southern California. But in Los Angeles, any site from that long ago disappeared beneath the the waves as sea levels rose by some 20 metres after the last great glacial melt. And now, a cheesy story. I'm terribly sorry. The Chinese cheese dates back to 1615 BCE. It seems to be the oldest cheese ever found in the world and owes its conservation to the extraordinary conditions at Small River Cemetery Number 5. I just love the way that Chinese give the names to these sites. Small River Cemetery Number 5 in northwest China. First documented by Swedish archaeologists in the 1930s, it lies in the fearsome Taklamaken Desert. A mysterious Bronze Age people buried their dead beneath what looked like large wooden boats atop a large sand dune near a now dry river. The boats were wrapped so snugly with cowhide that it was as if they were vacuum-packed. Well, so says study author Andrei Shevchenko, an analytical chemist at Germany's Max Planck Institute. The dry desert air and salty soil prevented decay to an extraordinary degree. The remains and grave goods were effectively freeze-dried, preserving the light brown hair and strangely non-Asian facial features of the dead, along with their felt hats, woolen capes and leather boots. Analysis of plant seeds and animal tissues showed that the burials date to between 1450 and 1650 BCE. Some of the bodies had odd-shaped crumbs on their necks and chests, and by analysing the proteins and fats in these clumps, Shevchenkov and his colleagues determined that they're definitely cheese, not butter, not milk, and was made by combining milk with a starter mix of bacteria and yeast. This technique is still used to make kefir, a sour, slightly fizzy dairy beverage, and kefir cheese, similar to cottage cheese. Very tasty, actually. Most cheese today is made with rennet, a substance from the guts of calves, lambs or kids that curdles the milk. Making cheese with rennet requires killing a young animal. Bet you didn't know that. The kefir method, however, does not. Shevchenkov argues that this would have helped drive the spread of herding through Asia from its origins in the Middle East. Both kefir and kefir cheese are low in lactose, which makes them edible for the lactose intolerant inhabitants of Asia. 
Bioarchaeologist Oliver Craig from the University of York in Britain says the study's suggestion that the cheese was made with kefir starter rather than rennet is hard to prove because the proteins could have decayed too much. He thinks a study of animal bones or pottery is needed to confirm that the cheese at the cemetery was part of a technological spread across Asia. Could it have been a cheese spread? Terrible. Anyway, with that bad joke and plenty more bad jokes, why not uh, keep up with some of the archaeology news either on the uh, Past Horizons website, www.pasthorizons.com or join us on Facebook. Why not? Just search for Archaeology Trials and Tools and you'll find us there. Many new archaeological and heritage employment opportunities can be found at Badger, of course, www.bajr.org and more can always be found at the spectacular Stone Pages News. Stonepages.com. So thank you very much for listening to Archaeology News Weekly and we hope you'll return to us again next week. Toodle pip. Toodle pip.